you know, it's great to be able to go to a place like this and talk about, you know, here's a utility that, you know, our foremost uh, responsibility is is reliable, affordable energy is what people rely on. Uh, but we're also here to drive home the, the role we play in uh, sustainability and environmental action. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We also spotlight recent news and bring in different voices from the CEA team. This special edition of the podcast was recorded at the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP25, in Madrid. Our featured discussion on today's podcast is with Roger Delantonia, the president and CEO of Fortis BC. But before we get to my conversation with Roger, CEA's VP of Policy Development, Chana Pereira, and I discuss what's at stake at COP25. Welcome back to the podcast, Jana. I think this is your second time. Yeah, this is my second time, I believe. But this time we're not recording it. We're not even recording it. I was going to say we're not recording it in the office in Ottawa. We're not even recording it in Canada. Uh, we're in Madrid at COP25. Can you sort of set the scene for us in terms of what the significance or importance is of COP25 for Canadian electricity companies? Why, why, uh, why are we here and a number of our members are here mm-hmm. as well? What's mm-hmm. significant? Yeah, thank you, Francis. Uh, COP25 is an important uh, international conference on climate change. And uh, <clears throat> this is the conference where Canada will have to uh, uh, determine their position on Article 6, which allows for emissions trading uh, between the parties to the Paris Agreement. A lot of discussions uh, here about including human rights and indigenous rights into Article 6 uh, of the Paris Agreement. Discussion about including indigenous rights and human rights into an article that's about emissions trading. Yeah, uh, because um, uh, civil society groups, uh, especially indigenous groups, are concerned about uh, exploiting their land and, and resources for uh, uh, redu- reducing emissions elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're concerned about that. Some of the developed countries have uh, supported that uh, idea of including indigenous rights into Article 6. Um, and and um, so it is uh, a concern uh, for industry uh, in terms of how they might interpret that. We want full flexibility uh, to meet our uh, targets. Uh, As you know, Canada um, has a a target of 30% reduction uh, from 2005 level uh, by 2030. And uh, uh, so meeting that um, uh, target is difficult and we want full flexibility uh, to meet uh, our obligation. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about Article 6, Article 6 is unfinished business from the Paris Accord from four years ago? Yeah, the rule book uh, for implementing uh, the Paris Agreement uh, is not final uh, until they conclude discussions and negotiations on Article 6. Uh, it is a uh, controversial issue. 
they couldn't agree uh, to all of the rules of Article 6 uh, at COP24. So uh, the negotiators will have to finalize the rule book on, uh, with Article 6 in order to operationalize the Paris Agreement. So I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not suggesting that we should be placing bets, but if you were, uh, given that we're, we're having this conversation at the, at the sort of the, the midpoint of the conference, but the negotiations are really getting underway in earnest right now. So this is Article 6 from the original Paris Agreement from four years ago. And so negotiations have been taking place to finalize the details on this, and that's been going on now for a number of that's years. That's been going on for a long time. So what do you think the odds are that we'll land by the end of, by the end of this week with, uh, with something that, uh, that, that would be um, agreeable to all of the parties involved? The negotiators are working on the text right now. They have um, roughly uh, four or five days uh, to conclude their discussions, I think it will come down to a political compromise. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the, the ministers who are arriving here for the high-level uh, high segment uh, next week will have to uh, look at where things are at with the negotiation and, and work on a compromise because it is essential that they fi finalize the rules on Article 6 at COP25. And I'm optimistic about um, uh, them finalizing the rules. Uh, and uh, the pressure is on. Uh, uh, the world community, uh, civil society, everyone is waiting for them to act. And, uh, and it will come down to the issue that we discussed mm -hmm. on human rights and indigenous rights. There's some uh, controversy around including that. Uh, and uh, we will have to wait and see what happens uh, next week. But I feel uh, optimistic that they will uh, reach a compromise uh, and potentially uh, develop a work program to further work on fine-tuning mm -hmm. uh, some of the elements of the uh, agreement on Article 6. So in, um, in the absence of, uh, of Article 6, we don't have a, a recognized international uh, trading regime. Presumably that's one of the reasons why a number of our members are very interested in, in these negotiations. What do you see as the potential benefit for Canadian electricity companies to, to having that international trading regime? Yeah, the, the benefit is it provides uh, flexibility to meet our targets. Uh, Canada is already um, uh, it's not in a good place in terms of meeting the 30% by 2030 mm -hmm. uh, emission redu reduction target. And for the Canadian companies, especially electricity companies, we want access to uh, uh, international credits uh, if required. Right. Uh, it is not um, uh, a certainty that we would invest in those credits, but we want the ability, the flexibility to use those credits to meet our own uh, emission reduction targets should we uh, require that over the next decade. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Canada is also looking at moving uh, to a net zero emissions target uh, by 2050. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that kind of uh, high ambition, I think it's important for Canada uh, to ensure that they uh, agree uh, to the final rules of Article 6 and commit uh, to um, uh, using Article 6 provisions in uh, 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 meeting of obligations under the Paris Agreement mm -hmm. and allowing the companies within Canada to uh, use the flexibility mechanisms of the Paris Agreement 
uh, to made of it have mm -hmm. any other issues for for Canada or for Canadian Canadian electricity apart from article 6 and presumably that also concerns about what is that um, net zero by 2050 commitment going to look like is there anything else that we should be keeping our eye on yeah I, I think that's really the issue uh, what Canada is going to be doing in terms of their 2030 target mm -hmm. uh, and the net zero commitment by 2050 is Canada willing to uh, upscale their target uh, the 2030 target uh, that's been discussed uh, uh, by parties here as to what to do uh, with the 2030 uh, uh, obligations whether they should be upscaling those uh, there's a lot of pressure um, uh, from uh, uh, different uh, parties to look at uh, changing those targets uh, enhancing those mm -hmm. nationally determined contributions uh, and uh, so the negotiators are feeling the pressure uh, and and that's why as I said it's more important for us to negotiate good rules around article 6 so we can meet our uh, existing 2030 mm -hmm. target right. but if Canada decides to enhance it further I think uh, that is a concern for us given that we are going in the wrong direction in terms of uh, emission already right and, and just to clarify that's Canada as a whole and other countries are going in the wrong direction not Canadian electricity where we've already reduced we've Absolutely. already done the 30% yeah, reduction we have uh, done our fair share yeah uh, we have reduced emissions by 30% from 2005 levels so we're, and we're going there. to be reducing yeah. another 30% by 2030 and uh, we are on track we are uh, almost 82% uh, non-emitting uh, uh, generation in Canada uh, with hydro and nuclear and uh, uh, but I think it's important for us to have that flexibility have realistic achievable targets uh, and uh, we do not want to commit as a country to targets that we wouldn't be able to uh, meet so that is one of my concerns and and for the industry uh, we need to keep uh, an eye on that issue mm -hmm. as well as what Canada might do in terms of made in the net zero emissions target by 2050. Right. What are the pathways that Canada is going to be looking at? We need to be engaged in that discussion. We need to be providing feedback uh, to our negotiators and the government of Canada, um, not just now, but after COP25 as well, as we mo uh, move into uh, COP26 in Glasgow, and, uh, because that's when uh, the negotiators will be looking at uh, more of the post-2030 mm -hmm. uh, targets as well. Okay. Tana, thanks for being our, our man on the ground here in, in Madrid at, uh, at COP25. Thank you for having me, Francis. Now let's listen to my conversation with Roger Delantonia of Forbes BC, recorded in December 2019 in Madrid at the UN COP25 conference. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. My and, first ever podcast. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> Exciting. Well, this is my first podcast from Madrid. And, uh, and, my, and my first trip to Madrid and my first time at a COP event or yeah. a conference of parties, as they call conference it. Conference of the parties, number 25. Yeah, both you and I and a number of other people here from the, uh, the Canadian electricity sector is their first trip here. And, I, you know, we'll have an opportunity maybe to chat a little bit about that as well in terms of some of the things that we might take away from this. But before we got to that, Roger, I wanted to ask you, 
kind of what was your um, uh, path to where you are now? You're president and chief executive of Fortis BC. When you were a kid, did you say to yourself, I want to grow up and run an electricity and natural gas distribution company? Uh, no, uh, definitely did not. Grew up uh, the son of, uh, of immigrants, uh, so uh, who came to Canada from Italy with no formal education, uh, mm -hmm. worked in uh, uh, construction. My, my uh, mother worked in a restaurant. Uh, so really didn't have any concept of corporate world. Uh, stressed uh, uh, in me to get education, which I did, and then uh, came out of uh, university with a finance background and uh, started uh, in the uh, energy sector with West Coast Energy. Uh, uh, was there for uh, a number of years. Left the industry, uh, went to a uh, logistics uh, company, so outside of the utility energy industry, uh, but within two years realized I really missed uh, the sense of serving that you get when you work for utility. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, often in the utility industry, uh, your neighbors are your customers. Uh, uh, found myself uh, wanting to get back into the industry. I joined uh, the precursor to Fortis BC, right. which is uh, Terrison. Yeah. And uh, through my career there, uh, I spent time in finance and regulatory and customer service uh, with no real uh, specific ambition for the top job, but uh, through uh, uh, fortune and uh, and hard work, uh, was given the opportunity and been in my uh, role now for two years. Mm. So that actually makes for I think a, a good segue to one of the things that we wanted to talk about. And we talked we've talked a little bit about this over the last couple of days, and that is here at um, the, the UN Climate Change Conference. You're one of a very small number of people that actually serves customers. There's a lot of people here from governments and from non-governmental organizations and, and all kinds of pressure groups and media, but there are a few people that are, are part of these conversations that actually serve customers day to day. What's that like in terms of, um, it must be surreal sometimes when you're listening to some of these conversations uh, from people that, that actually don't have to think about serving the end customer? Yeah, I think, uh, well, just what, maybe just an introductory comment on COP. It's, it's very cool to be here, I mm -hmm. must admit. Um, uh, it's a massive, massive uh, uh, exhibit uh, and conference. I think I heard 26,000 delegates. Right. Uh, I think 195 or 200 countries are represented. The diversity uh, uh, of, of people from across the globe here is quite exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, the enthusiasm is uh, infectious. Right. Uh, uh, I think when you get into the discussions, though, on the need for action and what that action looks uh, uh, like, as I say that, I'm looking at a sign that says hashtag time for action, uh, which is the theme here. Yeah. Uh, you realize that the, the ambitious goals and the implementation are not always uh, aligned. Mm. And uh, what brought me here, uh, you know, Fortis BC, we're fortunate to be part of the actual official Canada delegation. Uh, uh, and I think it's because we do look at our role and how do we implement uh, action as we transition to a lower carbon uh, uh, economy and society. Uh, and the fact that, you know, how that gets done is really going to be through uh, all sorts of organizations, including ours, uh, utility. We're, we're tasked with delivering uh, clean, affordable, reliable energy. Mm -hmm. and we are going to be a key vehicle in how we're going to deliver that uh, environmental benefit as well as maintaining affordability uh, and reliability. So it's been interesting to have those discussions 
with folks and explain how key our role is and that we're actually here to enable and implement uh, these lofty ambitions. Um, I will say one of the impressions I've gotten here, and this is the 25th Conference of Parties, mm -hmm. Uh, time flies. Uh, Paris, I believe, was uh, 2015, so yep. four years ago. Four years, yeah. And there is a, uh, a much bigger uh, involvement from the business community. I heard for the first time, we've heard of NGOs, non-government uh, organizations. We've heard of ENGOs, which is environmental non-government uh, organizations. Well, apparently I'm a bingo, which is That's a business right. <laughs> and industry, industry non-government organization. organization. Yep. So we've been going to the bingo briefings every morning. Yeah, and, yeah. and those are fascinating because yeah. the impression I get is that for years and years and years, this has really been a government and a non-government organization mm -hmm. uh, uh, meeting and business was uh, on the outside in a way. Mm -hmm. And here there's a very large desire for business to lead change. Right. Uh, some very innovative companies are here. Um, there's also uh, a utility. Uh, as an example, and, and we do have a history of innovation. I think that's partly why uh, we were invited to represent uh, or be part of the Canadian uh, delegation, uh, and and that is because of the ability for business to, businesses to lead in this sector. Right. Another unique feature of the company that you uh, that you run is that when when talking about issues um, uh, with respect to greenhouse gas reductions or electrification, you come at it with a somewhat different perspective perhaps than, than others in the electricity side because you're serving both electricity customers and natural gas customers. So how does that, how does that inform the, the approach that Fortis BC takes, the approach that you take when talking about issues like electrification? Yeah, we, uh, we are a bit unique. Uh, so uh, a little bit about uh, Fortis BC. Uh, we in, in British Columbia, we are a gas, natural gas and electricity distribution company. Uh, on the natural gas side, we serve about a million customers. On the electricity side, just under 200,000 uh, customers. Now those are measured in meters, mm -hmm. uh, the number of people and businesses. So we have a much bigger uh, touch point than the number of direct customers. We serve most of British Columbia uh, with either gas or in our service territories, electricity. Uh, we also have uh, liquefied natural gas production facilities, storage right. facilities. Um, we run hydroelectric facilities, so we are vertically integrated on the electric side and we have a very broad footprint on the natural gas side. So we span the energy, uh, end use energy spectrum mm -hmm. in BC, which gives us a unique perspective and, and expertise that I think not everyone has coming from just one sector or the other mm -hmm. in the utility space. I think the common thread for us is that at the end of the day, we serve or deliver energy in different forms to end use customers. So right. we look at it from a customer perspective and we look at the, the sort of the three pillars of affordability, which mm -hmm. is critical, uh, reliability, it's a, it's, it's a lifeblood uh, service we provide, mm -hmm. it, it fuels society. Um, but also uh, the, the environmental piece is sustainability piece and, and Fortis PC, part of the Fortis Inc. family, sustainability is central uh, to what we do. So we look at what kind of energy in its different forms do our customers need, mm -hmm. uh, balancing reliability, uh, affordability, but also the sustainability piece. So when we hear uh, phrases such as electrification, we push back a little bit there because I think really what we're looking at is how do you transition to lower carbon and how do you transition to uh, 
uh, or how do you achieve emissions reductions? Right. And uh, for us, you're going to use all sorts of energy. The world needs more energy. So how are you going to optimize the energy delivery systems mm -hmm. to uh, deliver uh, energy which is affordable, reliable, and, and low carbon? So uh, we look at the mix. We look at the ability to integrate. Uh, you know, an example here in British Columbia, well, here, here in Madrid, <laughs> speaking about <laughs> British Columbia. Sure. Uh, you know, I think you have to understand each jurisdiction's energy mix. So in, in British Columbia, we're fortunate. We have well over 90, 95% of our hydro, our electricity system is hydroelectric. So right. we're in a far stronger position than many jurisdictions. It also means for us to achieve emissions reductions, it's a higher bar. Right. It, uh, right. So it's, 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 it's uh, you know, a blessing in, in disguise, much more of a blessing though. Uh, so, and then if you look at the carbon uh, uh, map or the emissions map in British Columbia, 41%, roughly 40% is from transportation. Right. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 whole, the residential and building uh, sector, I think, is 6%, uh, 6 to 10%, depending on how it's measured. Uh, and that's with a province that does enjoy winter. So we mm -hmm. have very high building standards. Um, we have very efficient appliances and we have a very um, uh, strong backbone of hydro. So for us, the focus really is how do you use the electrons you have and maybe focus that on uh, uh, vehicles, uh, light which passenger, which the is low hanging fruit, low hanging really? fruit yeah. uh, and the biggest piece of the puzzle. Right. And then how do you use the, uh, the gas delivery system, natural gas delivery system to deliver uh, emissions reduction through innovation and technology? Uh, so we just announced as an organization, with something we're very proud of, uh, what we call our 30 by 30 plan. Mm -hmm. So we put out a, a challenge, an ambitious target. It's going to take a lot of work to get there, uh, but a 30% reduction uh, of emissions in our customers' emissions by 2030. Mm -hmm. And we see us getting there really through uh, four main pillars. Uh, one is... Uh, uh, energy efficiency spending. So we're looking to triple by 2022 the amount of energy efficiency incentives we're going to be putting in our customers' hands to use less of our product, less right. natural gas, less um, electricity. And we've been doing that for uh, uh, years and years. We've, you know, one of the most, uh, uh, one of the jurisdictions in North America that's been a leader in energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. Uh, we see uh, we're setting a very high target of 15% of the natural gas that we move through our distribution system to be 15% uh, to come from renewable energy or renewable gas uh, sources by 2030. So for, uh, for those that are are, are unfamiliar yeah. with renewable natural gas, this is this is gas captured from yeah. landfills? Land, land, uh, we see uh, landfill gas, yeah. so all the uh, municipal uh, uh, dumps ref, uh, uh, in Vancouver and BC. We just uh, had a deal approved by the, our regulator uh, for the city of Vancouver's mm -hmm. landfill uh, mm -hmm. to purchase their raw landfill gas, run it through uh, our processes, and then uh, and you'll have methane, which yep. will then go into our natural gas system. So uh, agricultural waste is another one right. uh, from, from cows. Uh, as an example, the, the other area we're looking at is woody biomass. Can you break down wood waste, mm -hmm. uh, which BC has plenty full of, and turn that into methane? Uh, grade uh, renewable gas and put that into our system. So our target is by 2030 to have 15% of the natural gas we move through our system to come from renewable gas. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at a very big opportunity which uh, is very unique to BC. We have 
the third busiest port in North America mm -hmm. by gross tonnage uh, mm -hmm. in Vancouver. Uh, can we, and if you take all the ships that um, uh, that come into to Port Metro Vancouver, the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority, uh, up and down the coast, uh, if you took all the emissions from those ships to call, make a port of call in Vancouver, uh, I think the estimate is the emissions are about equivalent to all of BC, the domestic emissions. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so we've been working on converting uh, local uh, traffic. So BC Ferries runs, uh, has converted from diesel to uh, natural gas, mm -hmm. LNG fuel vessels. Right. Uh, as well as a company called C-SPAN, their barge ferries. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've already started uh, domestically. Uh, we uh, pioneered uh, rolling uh, LNG uh, tractor trailer unit onto a ferry and fueling on board. So truck when you to say, ship. When you say we, and the Fortis BC, it was actually your company. Yeah, we've done. Uh, we're approaching two thousand what we call bunkerings or refuelings. Okay. Uh, we're now looking to uh, get uh, approval to build a, a jetty uh, in the Fraser River, so we're able to fuel uh, ships. Uh, marine bunkering is called so mm -hmm. ship to ship. Yep. Uh, and try to convert all that uh, ocean-bound container ships to uh, LNG. It's about um, a 20, uh, roughly a 20% reduction in emissions, about a 90% reduction in air pollution. If you uh, go to LNG, uh, and most wow. ships when they're in port, they don't plug in mm -hmm. in the traditional sense to run their utilities as their, as so their anchor. Import, they're, they're running their engines. They're running their off yeah. of diesel. Yeah. So it's an air quality improvement. That's what yeah. you see in Asia. Yeah. We see an opportunity, which is even more unique. So uh, LNG is roughly 20, 20. 3% uh, lower emissions than uh, marine fuel. Uh, mm -hmm. Our LNG is actually uh, is what's called electric drive. We use our electricity to create the liquefaction process. Gotcha. So uh, some initial uh, modeling that we've done by third parties, we're probably a third more efficient on the emissions reduction. So it's like 26 to 28% uh, 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 cleaner. Mm -hmm. So BC LNG, and then when you consider methane regulations in the province are very stringent, yeah. uh, LNG from BC in that application is better than LNG from other parts of the world. Mm. So it's another advantage. And we've seen uh, strong support from the BC government as well as interest from the federal government as this being a unique opportunity for Canada to be a leader and BC in particular to be a leader in LNG uh, bunkering. So so that's, that's the, uh, the third pillar, if you will, and we are, uh, in our electric service territory, we've um, installed, uh, we're approaching, I think, 17 fast chargers uh, in our electric service territory to support uh, EV uh, conversion EV vehicles, mm -hmm. electric vehicles. So, you know, as a utility, um, that 30 by 30, I think it's, uh, I think we're one of the first utilities in Canada and the first gas utility that we're aware of in Canada to set such a target. Other utilities are doing great work as well. Mm -hmm. Just we've decided to put a, a target out there to 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 stretch for, and uh, you know it's great to be able to go to a place like this and talk about you know here's a utility that you know our foremost re uh, uh, responsibility is is reliable affordable energy is what people rely on, uh, but we're also here to drive home the the role we play in uh, sustainability and environmental action. Right. And I, I want to follow up on some of the discussions that you may have had while 
well here in Madrid um, with respect to LNG bunkering. But but first, you mentioned electric vehicles, and this has come up um, in a, a number of conversations we've had in the past. I'm curious, uh, are they uh, in rate base? Uh, yeah, the, the EV charging stations uh, right now are, but okay. we, we are uh, through a process with the VCUC because we... Um, uh, are at the forefront of this ourselves and NBC Hydro yeah. is, is doing similar and we've been fortunate to partner with uh, federal and provincial uh, governments to get uh, funding and uh, with our uh, funding to contribute to this initial rollout uh, to at least give people comfort that if you're driving anywhere across for electric service territory and, and all of BC, BC Hydro is doing the same that you don't have the, the range anxiety, the range anxiety as yeah. it's called. Absolutely. So for us, um, uh, the initial stations are in rate base, but our view there is that we're, we're not, it's not a market we, we expect to be in. It's an opportunity for us to start uh, the rollout and we expect eventually you'll see a proliferation. Right. So again, I think it's really, uh, we, we're well suited to do what is not happening yet. You see chargers stations in, in, in high rises and parking lots, right. but we span a very rural area right. of BC, if you know our service territory, yeah. Yeah. Uh, through the South Okanagan into the, the, the West Kootenays area, area of the Kootenays. So for us, it's a chance to um, get that infrastructure in place. But as, that, as more cars move to electric, plug-in electric vehicles, others will start building that mm -hmm. infrastructure. So it's not necessarily utility specific, right. but I think utilities are well positioned to help drive the early adoption. So spark spark the, the beginning yeah. of that transition. No pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> you had mentioned um, LNG bunkering, which I hadn't heard of before until you and I first started uh, chatting about this uh, um, since we arrived. In the hallway conversations here, is is that a topic that that uh, that, that people are uh, seemingly interested in? Is it because it's it, yeah, I'm fascinated by it. I hadn't even heard of this before. Um, so I'm wondering if other people are, are doing like me, stopping and pausing and saying, wait a second, that's pretty significant in terms of reductions. What, you know, is this really happening and, and what's next? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, there's a lot of interest. Yeah. Uh, is, it a, is it a feature here? Uh, I'm learning a lot about the way the Paris agreements work and, and the way this function works and different organizations and their roles around emissions. So. What's unique about LNG bunkering, I think one of the things uh, that we're, we're, I mean, we're aware of it because we're in the, uh, in, in the space, but uh, the Paris Agreement is really a nation-to-nation -nation, uh, relationship. Uh, there are certain, uh, so each uh, country has their nationally determined mm -hmm. uh, targets uh, yep. for emissions and, and all signatories to the Paris Agreement have that. And then they are rolling out what actions to achieve uh, the targets that Paris lays out. Uh, the Paris Agreement also has uh, uh, carved out or put the responsibility for emissions for certain organizations that are UN-based organizations mm -hmm. where it's not a domestic issue. So for instance, marine uh, emissions is covered by the International Marine Organization, IMO, which is a right. UN body. Right. So it fits within COP, but it's not part of the, the the discussions here because it's not one nation. Mm. So the question is, is the nation that the ship leaves or the nation that the ship is going to responsible? And right. marine traffic, marine maritime law is covered by not one nation. Once you get past, I believe it's a 12 mile limit. Mm -hmm. So there's different regulations. It is an area that is clearly a focus, uh, depending on which study you read. Uh, and I'm not sure which study I'm about to quote. So uh, 
uh, you know, don't email me if I get it quite <laughs> wrong, but uh, I think the measure I said, read is if you took all global shipping traffic right. that is uh, not, you know, within a bat, like a like a port to port within a country, but all international shipping. Uh, I want to say it would be the seventh largest country. It's like 700 mm. million tons. It's it's a massive piece of the pie and. The IMO has first uh, put in regulations for 2020, which is really focused on air quality, sulfur reduction. Okay. And that's where our initial opening uh, came in, which is LNG is again the 90% mm -hmm. or, or reduction more, in, in pollutants, uh, yeah. A, a particular matter. Yeah. But the IMO is now looking at emissions reduction. So again, LNG provides a benefit there as other technologies, different engines, different fuels. But again, it's, it's one piece of the puzzle. So you know the hallway discussions here is people are aware of it people uh know that uh it's an opportunity it's not a central focus here uh it's similar to aviation mm -hmm. aviation has uh its own uh uh governing uh uh umbrella if you will on how airlines are, are trading credits and countries of domicile for airlines are sharing that to make sure that the aviation industry also is setting targets. So it's something that's uh, definitely getting more attention mm -hmm. um, as you go beyond nation to nation and you start to look at all the other impacts. So it feels that we're here at the right time to talk mm -hmm. about it, mm -hmm. but there's a broader uh, discussion that's occurring at COP25 that is is that this will, uh, I think, eventually fit under, and that's the discussion around Article 6, which is how you share benefits and how you through market mechanisms are able to achieve uh, reductions that, you know, each country maybe can't do on their own, but if they work together and share the, the, the benefits of that, can get a bigger uh, reduction in emissions than trying to go it alone, just mm -hmm. what you can do it within your borders. So I think that's something that will be evolving here in, in the years to come and fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, we're partway through uh, the, um, the conference so we don't know at this stage whether or not they're they're going to be able to land uh, and come to agreement on on article six but um, at this stage are there any big takeaways this is my first cop experience it's your first cop experience we've talked about you know we need to start planning earlier for cop 26 be more deliberative and so on but are there any big takeaways from a, um, a Canadian industry perspective uh, that you know when you when you head back you saying to yourself okay we need to make sure that we do this more effectively and we need to do what are the what are the sorts of things that, that we should be following up on yeah I would I would say that uh, I sat in on the bingo meeting today and yep. there was a, the International Chamber of Commerce um, gave a presentation. Uh, there's an organization called the uh, International Emissions Trading Association, Association. AIDA. AIDA. Yep. Um, there's these umbrella organizations that are uh, in support of market-based mechanisms but also represent business. And I, you know, the the the, 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 the thirst or the desire for uh, participation and action by businesses um, uh, who, whose employees are looking for action, who want to uh, be part of the solution, I, I think there's an opportunity for business to be more active that maybe didn't fully appreciate. Mm -hmm. This is Yes, this is nation to nation, but you know, nations uh, represent their citizenry and that, you know, their society, and that includes uh, business, uh, non-business organizations. Right. I've sat in on the Canadian delegation briefings and there's folks from all stripes there. There's uh, Indigenous uh, representation, there's uh, 
labor representation, there's business representation, there's community representation. Uh, and, you know, I think the takeaway is that there is a real role to play um, and there's willingness to collaborate. And I think that is something that, at least for me, is, is new. And I think the takeaway is for business is to be active through the various associations. So you're speaking with a collective mm -hmm. voice, not mm -hmm. necessarily an individual voice. Right. Um, and I think there is ability to contribute even just with local action. Uh, so I think that to me is, is uh, I wouldn't say it's, uh, I think it's, it's been a bit illuminating. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that touch point that, you know, there are associations that are taking a broader perspective and those associations span uh, many different countries. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a good avenue for businesses to participate in if they want to be a bit more broad than, than what they can do locally. Mm -hmm. And I, I did want to ask a, a question about your experience in the overall Fortis group before we wrap up, because um, you know, we talked about some unique perspectives that you bring as an uh, electricity and, and, and gas company. But you also, I think, bring some uh, interesting perspectives because you're president and CEO of Fortis BC. You're also a member of the board of directors of Central Hudson. Um, and you're part of the Fortis Group of Companies. Fascinating history, Fortis Group of Companies, still based in St. John's, Newfoundland, but what I wanted to, to ping you about was, much like Amera, Fortis's growth has now been outside of Canada, not within Canada. Is that because our rates of returns are lower? Is it, you know, are, are there other things going on here that just make um, investment opportunities brighter outside of our borders and is there what are the sorts of things that we should be thinking about doing in Canada to maybe reverse that? Yeah I think a two-part question so I'll, I'll talk about the success that is Fortis uh, which is a great Canadian success mm -hmm. story uh, mm -hmm. starting uh, out of the roots of Newfoundland Power and St. John's uh, Newfoundland Labrador uh, and then a westward uh, expansion acquiring utilities and, and becoming a very strong Canadian utility uh, uh, operator. Yeah. Uh, the move uh, southward, I think, really it was a natural progression once you get to a certain size in Canada. The Canadian energy, uh, I should say the Canadian utility space is quite interesting. Um, there's a handful of large players in the natural gas utility space. Uh, uh, Fortis BC uh, is, I think, well now the second largest with Enbridge Union in, in uh, uh, in, in Ontario, and then uh, ourselves, uh, then ATCO being investor-owned. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a number of other investor-owned, but that's sort of the, the landscape for you know growth in the natural gas utility space. So we have a very large footprint there. The electric uh, industry is a mix of investor-owned, but also dominated by very large crown corporations. Yeah. So the opportunity for expansion there, for, for large-scale expansion, is limited. There's just not mm -hmm. the universe of utilities to acquire mm. of scope and scale. So the move into the U.S., given that you know very similar regulatory framework, very simple, you know, same. You know, we share financial markets where there's an integrated financial market. You understand law, you understand tax, you understand regulation. So it was a natural progression to pursue growth was to move into the U.S. and 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 Fortis uh, had you know three very successful acquisitions in the U.S. Um, also, shout out to the Caribbean members of Fortis. We mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. have expansion down in uh, Grand Cayman and Turks and Caicos, yep. uh, as well as in Belize. Uh, so it's a really a North American-based uh, 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 Caribbean 
based uh, utility. We're now the 15th, uh, could be 14th, but in the top 15 of utility uh, stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it does give a, a, a North American view. It's 97% uh, poles and wires. So it's mm -hmm. a very much a distribution and transmission uh, company. Uh, very large uh, electric transmission footprint in the Midwest yep. uh, through ITC. Yep. Uh, our UNS Arizona uh, Tucson Electric uh, is, I think, one of the largest installed bases of uh, renewable energy. Mm -hmm. uh, Arizona has a, uh, a target of 30% renewables. I think uh, by 2030, I think uh, uh, TEP will surpass that in the next couple of years here, well ahead of schedule. Right. And then uh, I have the pleasure of sitting in Central Hudson, which is a gas electric utility in, in the Hudson Valley. And, and again, New York is a very progressive mm -hmm. uh, jurisdiction. So we see, um, you know, different approaches suiting different jurisdictions. Uh, and I think that the move was really a function of, you know, Ford has got to a, a very successful size in, in Canada with a great mix of utilities, BC, Alberta, um, the Maritimes in, in Newfoundland. Uh, and then it was great. It was really natural progression to take that footprint, that platform, and expand successfully mm -hmm. into the U.S. I think now that we're, you know, Fortis has that broad perspective. You know, uh, our CEO Barry Perry is, is very active uh, in, in both Canada uh, and the U.S. in speaking about uh, issues facing the uh, uh, the utility sector, uh, and very progressive uh, leader. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we see. The differences and the similarities, and I think you know, there's there's a lot more similarities in regulation than differences. Right. And I think you are now starting to see some differences that are, uh, uh, you know, impacting or not impacting, but are, are noticeable. You'd mentioned cost of capital. Uh, you know, the I mm -hmm. think cost of capital is one where there there are differences between the jurisdictions, and I think you could say generally. Canadian regulation has for years been ahead of uh, U.S. regulation, uh, more progressive with decoupling, with uh, four test years, mm -hmm. uh, deemed capital structure. Mm -hmm. But when you get down to specific jurisdictions, I think a lot of that is now prevalent in the U.S. Right. So, you know, if, as an investor-owned utility, the reality is, is that you do have to consider the comparability of returns mm -hmm. in, in, in different jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. you're starting to see... You know, a lot of U.S. Canadian utilities look south into into Canada for higher returns. You know, we we own ten different. We Fortis, I think, it's ten utilities in seventeen jurisdictions. So right. you have, you know, uh, for uh, regulation mm -hmm. and then state regulation, state regulation and then yep. provincial regulation. Yeah. Uh, so we do get to see a very good mix, and we see more similarities than differences. So really, it's a question of how do we. Um, uh, ensure that from an investor perspective, there is uh, a more consistent approach on on uh, cost of capital, which I think everyone's interest is in uh, uh, maintaining the financial health and integrity mm -hmm. of, of, of our utilities, given the critical role mm -hmm. they provide. So it's something that um, I think, you know, we, we, we bring uh, our focus to. Uh, I will say that from a regulatory perspective, you know, our jurisdiction, BC, the one I'm familiar with, you know, we benefit from a, a, what I would say is a stable, predictable, constructive relationship. Right. Uh, yeah. I think the big challenge for regulation right now is how do you adopt innovation? How do you adopt mm -hmm. um, 
the uh, the different uh, customer desires, going from a purely economic uh, uh, operational type view to adopting, like say, EV charging stations. Mm. Where does that fit? How do you bring in? Uh, you know, we've been a very uh, we've been uh, in BC. I'd like to think we're one of the most innovative jurisdictions, both from a regulatory perspective. We've been under performance-based regulation, which the BCUC, I think, brought into Fortis BC Energy's pre, uh, predecessor, uh, BC Gas, at, you know, in the early 90s. Mm. So we've had, we've had incentive-based regulation for in the gas and electric decades. utilities for, mm. yeah. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we have uh, uh, renewable natural gas now that you can uh, uh, select on your bill to deliver, uh, to, to take a percentage of your natural gas to come from renewable sources. That's something that was innovative in BC that we've gotten support for through the regulator. Um, it's not easy, right? Uh, we've had lots of challenges, um, but we've always found a way to find things that work. And I think that's where you know regulators are being challenged because they are professional regulators or experts in economic regulation. They're well-versed in bond rate principles mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. operations and rate design and cost allocations and 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 whatnot and but you know uh, innovation is impacting all, all sectors of society right. uh, how businesses uh, communicate I mean, we're sitting here doing a podcast in a hall in Madrid that's going to go <laughs> online and so mm-hmm. you know you can't look around without seeing the impacts of innovation and Absolutely. in the utility industry I think maybe uh, because we've done a good job of, of you know uh, uh, delivering energy you know, it's an area that has been fairly staid and mm-hmm. stable, mm-hmm. but the last number of years, we see innovation and from customer expectations to operational uh, uh, innovation, um, really enabling an exciting change. And I think it's how do us as the utility and the regulators ensure that we can get through this, uh, disruption is the wrong word, transformation I think mm-hmm. is a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and I think that's something that we're interested to see in different jurisdictions because every jurisdiction is looking at it slightly differently. Right. But uh, yeah, so that's uh, sort of a diversion from the uh, discussion on Fortis, but that's sort of uh, uh, you know a bit of a story from how where they started, what we see in the U.S. and Canada given our broad uh, umbrella. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. One question that I ask everybody that comes onto the podcast is about either the book that you're reading now or a book that you've recently read that you would recommend others crack the cover of. Yeah, I'm going to, this is going to, uh, not going to, it's going to sound kind of funny, but it's, it's, I think relevant sitting here at uh, a climate conference. I read a book called power trip by, uh, Michael Weber. Okay. So it's, it's effectively the, the history of energy, <laughs> Uh, stay in your lane, as they say. Uh, but it's it's uh, so Michael Weber. I've, I've never met the individual, the author. Uh, he's a, I think he's a chief technology officer for Onji, which is a big French utility. Okay. Uh, uh, he's an American, I think, out of the University of Austin. I think, in, I, I believe, um, a researcher uh, uh, as well as an author uh, in the energy space. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's an interesting book because uh, it, it really looks at energy and how it's transformed different sectors of society. So, uh, you know, water, uh, food, transportation, uh, cities, um, security, and just how prevalent uh, energy is 
uh, and how uh, in, uh, you know how energy is used by society that mm. I think people don't take for granted, um, and how uh, back to the climate discussion. For instance, on on food security, uh, you know the book uh, posits that we don't have a food supply issue. Mm -hmm. We have the technology to feed the planet. Mm -hmm. We have a food security issue because it's it's the supply chains, uh, okay. the underlying yeah, yeah. energy systems. That for a lot of people, they do have food scarcity, unfortunately. Right. Uh, and then other areas, you know, like food waste. How much mm -hmm. food gets wasted? And the energy. When you consider the amount of energy that goes into the production. And the delivery and the and the refrigeration and the preparation of food, and then you consider an issue like how much uh, food waste there is, uh, how much you could impact energy use by simply being less wasteful for food, mm -hmm. um, how cities have developed with energy because you don't have to be on a waterway or near you know irrigation is now possible right anywhere, uh, uh, how food is or how energy has uh, uh, transitioned transportation. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 not a book about energy per se, which I think most people might be dry, but it's really about how energy is underpinned and transformed different sec mm -hmm. sectors. So it's a really interesting read, and I think somebody in the industry I found it very useful because it really gave me a different perspective of thinking about energy. And I think it'd be also quite insightful for folks who aren't in the industry that again think of energy as its own industry, but not understanding how it undercuts or underpins so many of what we so much of what we just take for granted or how it's impact in many ways or enabled uh, things that we, we take for granted. So I, I think it's uh, quite an interesting read um, for those who are looking for something a little bit different. Okay, and uh, again, the title is? Uh, Power Trip, Power and Trip. I think it's Michael Weber. Okay, Yeah. great. Roger, thank you very much for taking the time to jump on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Francis, and uh, great to be uh, able to do this. And enjoy Madrid. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. As always, we invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.